Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is my beloved friend, Nancy Baker Cahill. Uh, regular listeners will know that I've talked about her endlessly because she introduced me to half the people on this podcast. She is my soul sister, one of my dearest friends. LA's unimaginable without her. She's, she's the friend that you text in the middle of the night and who actually texts back. We share recipes and sleep remedies and book recommendations and pretty much everything. And it was so fun to get the chance to sit down for an hour and just talk, dive deep into books. We share books and talk about books a lot, but not to this degree. And it was so lovely to get the opportunity to do it. What's even nicer of Nancy is that we had to do it twice because the first time, halfway through not even three quarters of the way through the first interview my laptop died and by died I mean went black and we were 45 minutes in to talking about all her books and uh, and not a minute of it was saved which was just heartbreaking and she was her traditionally hilarious and delightful self and laughed it off and said so fun we get to meet again so we did we met a week later and we drank beer and we did it all over again. And you know what's fun is we didn't repeat it. It's not the same podcast. It's a different one. And I feel like we explored different avenues and went down different paths. And it just goes to show what a great friend and great person she is that she was willing to do that. Uh, Nancy is a visual artist who is as gifted with graphite pencil as she is with her virtual reality gear that she works with. She makes uh, extraordinary works of art that you can actually climb into. You can have them on your phone. Twitter followers of mine will know that the fourth wall app is something that I love and have on my phone and I project crazy bits of art all over the world and then you get to climb into it. I really recommend it. It's fun, it's extraordinary and it's kind of groundbreaking. It really is. Anyway, here's me and Nancy talking about art and books and how they intersect. And I know you're going to love her as much as I do. Okay, the first thing that needs saying is that this is not the first time we have done this. <laughs> and Nancy, thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing my podcast for the second time. I would do it ten times. I would do it ten times. Okay. You I might don't, switch up my books a little. Don't even fucking say it because, because God forbid. Okay, so just to clarify for those of you listening at home, I, I'm not even going to drag you through the just mortifying bonfire of the vanities that was the first time we tried this. Suffice to say that Nancy has thoroughly rehearsed this podcast and it didn't record. So, um, wasn't my massive fuck up, and luckily is not only the most talented artist I know, but also the most generous friend I have. And and here we are again. This time not in Nancy's studio, but in Nancy's lovely house, sipping a beer. Maybe, maybe we are. Maybe, maybe we're maybe, not. Maybe, maybe not. it's water. Guess what? You'll never know. Maybe it's rice beer. Maybe it's rice beer. Maybe it's maybe it's my sparkling, favorite beer. Sparkling water. <laughs> and here we are 
again. But we're not even going to... You know what we're going to do? We're going to ignore the fact that we did it before. Yeah. We're not even going to try and recreate that. No. Because that was its own thing. I don't even know what I said. special private thing just for us. I've already forgotten. <laughs> exactly. I just remember laughing really hard. We did laugh really yeah. hard. After... Um, so we're going to start this over. You just handed me a book that is not one of your five. Yes. And I just want you to tell me about it. Is this what you're reading right now? Yes. And I sort of wish it was one of my five. Because really? it's one of those moments. Yeah. Okay. So the book I'm holding is called Dawn of the New Everything. It is by Jaron Lanier. Yes. I think is that that's how you pronounce it. The subtitle is Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. So I'm just going to say right off the bat, no wonder this is right up your alley. Because Nancy is an extraordinary visual artist whose current forays are into virtual reality and augmented reality. But she's also, you know, an incredible just artist with charcoal and all the rest of it. The Fourth Wall app is something that Twitter followers of mine will know. It's something I love deeply. It's the most awesome app that you can use and climb into her drawings and project them into wherever you are and virtually walk through her studio. It's so fun and it's so groundbreaking and so extraordinary to get up close to your work like that so so much no surprise generous generous introduction no not at all so no surprise that the book that i'm looking at is about virtual reality tell me how did you find it oh i am so lucky i had this wonderful conversation with a man named john bulett I hope I'm not butchering his name as well. He works for, he's a journalist, a tech journalist for Refinery29. Yeah. And we were just having this amazing conversation. And he said, well, surely you've read this book. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, I haven't. And he said, well, you need to get your hands on it because it aligns almost exactly with everything we're talking about and everything right. you're saying. Right. And so, you know, being like you, voracious mm-hmm. around new material and new books, I just immediately bought it. And instantly I realized, oh, this one belongs with the art of cruelty. It belongs with aftermath. It belongs mm-hmm. with those, that incredibly rare genre of book, which blends the intensely personal mm-hmm. with the philosophical. Mm-hmm. And in this case, with the technical, right. which generally, you know, might feel inaccessible to people, especially because he's clearly a math genius. Oh, I mean, his story is absolutely fascinating. But it is... I, I literally haven't been able to put it down. It's partly why I was up at 2 in the morning. The I reviews, could not put it down. The reviews are amazing. I mean, New York Times says daring, original, terrifically inviting. New York Times also says lucid, powerful, and persuasive, poetic, and prophetic, say the Times of London. Okay, I'm sold. Tell me why... Why, if I know nothing about VR as I do, other than the times that I have climbed into your work, why will I like it? Okay, well, first of all, you'll love it because he's an extraordinary storyteller. Mm. And his voice is irresistibly... He's one of those people that's so smart that he's humble about his... He's, mm. He has a, just a tremendous humility about his intelligence. Mm-hmm. I think probably because he's so open-minded, mm. which to me is such a mark of of real intelligence and curiosity. He's capable of awe. He expresses awe. Is he talking about the applications of what the dawn of the new everything is well, pretty wide? Is it the applications of VR just in the artistic world or in every world? Like- well, fascinatingly, he's one of the basically founders of VR. So he was—he kind of got there first in the 80s. 
So he goes back, yes, so he goes back to the 80s. But when you learn about his personal history, it all starts to make sense. For example, he lost his mother very early on. I think he was 13 years old when his, and his mother was the breadwinner. His father was able to afford, I I think, either on a teacher's salary or he hadn't even gotten a job yet, a a tract of land in New Mexico, not a, you know, a sort of hard scrabble tract of land Mm -hmm. surrounded by mobile homes and that sort of thing. And they lived in tents for two years. And he basically said to his son, while we're living in tents, design the house we're going to live in. Oh, wow. And to his 13-year-old son. (laughs) And he did. He said, we'll build it. And they did. And it's a series of of geodomes, basically, that they lived in. So unconventional from the start, but arguably presaged his appreciation for VR, for for these sort of transcendent spaces. Mm. And what's interesting about the way he talks about VR and the reason why it's so compelling to me is because he really has this humanistic angle that's sort of reductive, but he talks about the sort of, um, he fully acknowledges the dark applications, the, the sort of ways in which it will be and is being abused. Like what? Well, there's a theory, I think it's called, I'm going to butcher it, I think it's called Skinner's Box, uh-huh. and which is a philosophical, around the time, I think post-war, there were like the Milgram experiment, there were all these sort of Pavlovian, all these sort of behavioral experiments. Mm-hmm. And Skinner, I believe experimented on animals but the idea was that you would put an animal in a box and the animal would think that it had choice you in fact were controlling everything the animal did at all times Mm -hmm. so there's that you can apply that to porn military anything you want but in his case you know he's really interested in the expansive potential of vr in the artistic potential of vr he's really interested in haptics and sound Mm -hmm. all these extrasensory sort of trans, all the transcendent potential. And to be fair, I'm only halfway through it. So, mm-hmm. but as you can see, it's already marked, underlined, yeah, dog-eared. Right. I've scribbled notes. I'm having a conversation with him without even talking to him. You've talked to, to me before about VR as being a means of extending or widening the capacity for empathy. Yes. Which I'm always really, really struck by. That, for example, I think you talked to me once, or maybe I heard you doing another podcast once, where you talked about the possibility of, like, stepping into a Syrian refugee camp yes. through VR. Yes. And actually, rather than what a two-minute experience of that does, just sensorially to the body, to consciousness, rather than a 40-page in-depth New York Times magazine article right 100%. And, and what that is and we all know what that is we all know what it is to go to a movie as opposed to reading a book I mean there's a reason the visual world coexists along with the written word you know there's they they rival each other in their different ways but it's really interesting to me that the idea that VR just just that, that VR has that capacity because that to me puts it in the same realm as literature I, I believe literature oh. is the elastic that makes us widen and grow as human beings and continue to experience other things to stand in other people's shoes vr literally puts you in other people's shoes like there's a really interesting correlation between the two i think that's such a fascinating connection which i would never have made prior to this prior to that Uh, you're absolutely brilliant and that's true yes i mean that that that's a whole segment of vr called immersive journalism right and, um, and that's really the context I first learned about it 20 years ago, not even in the Is 80s, it? but 20 years ago yeah. when I was an undergraduate. You know, I think that you could still, but I think it can be applied perhaps more abstractly. And in my case, I hope poetically mm. through art. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I love 
is that like literature, especially if you don't dwell too much, my own, this is just my opinion. Yeah. If you don't dwell too much, if you offer extrasensory uh, information, mm-hmm. in other words, not just visual information, mm-hmm. extrasensory information, you are able, I think, and hope to elicit a truly individual response to the work. Right. In other words, it's not pre, pre it's not pre-gamed for you. Right. As in, as it is in gaming, and it's right. not Skinner's Box actually. Right. It's the opposite of Skinner's Box. Right. Well, up to a point. I mean, that's that could be argued actually vigorously, but but I agree with you because it's sort of why why we all have our you know we're also um, uh, possessive of, of our favorite books the way we imagine them in our heads, right. right? They exist there. And I think what we're really talking about is a different kind of consciousness mm-hmm. and memory, and that's also what's going on. You know, I, the founder of VR, well, one of the other founders, Chris Milk, said you know that in VR your consciousness is the medium. Arguably, the same is true when you read a book, right? Right, you, yeah. you're engaging with your consciousness, totally. your unconscious, and your subconscious. Yeah. As you fill in the blanks that yeah. aren't provided for you. Yeah. Which is why sometimes when we see books made into movies, of course, it's so devastating. It's devastating. And I think it creates more polemic than just about any other adaptation. I mean, adap- no, all adaptations I think create more more polemics than normal, straightforward original works. Absolutely. Because we do have all our own versions of what Howard's End looks like, or Game of Thrones, or you know, whatever yeah. Emma, whoever it is, they are ours when they're when they're ours. When they're ours. Yeah, yeah exactly. I felt that, and as much as I love Gregory Peck. I felt that way watching To Kill a Mockingbird. I thought, oh, this isn't how I pictured it at all. Oh, that's so interesting. So that was your first book. That was my first book. First book, lovely segue. Harper Lee, 1960, it was published. Gregory Peck was not how you'd pictured it. No. That's so interesting. He's a wonderful Atticus, but that's not how I pictured Atticus. So how, how old were you when you read it, and how old were you when you saw the movie? Because it was the 70s and it was the era of benign neglect, I'm sure I read it inappropriately uh, young. I think I was probably I was probably around eight or nine. And do you know who gave it to you? Uh, I found it on the bookshelf, as, really? as I found all things. Oh, I just really? found it on the bookshelf. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I think I was around, I think I was around that age. Golly, that's young. Yeah, totally. I think it was, yeah, I was a precocious reader. Yeah. Uh, anything I could get my hands on. No, I'm with you, totally. Very quickly dispensed with, you know. My mom claims that the first thing I learned to read was the Renault 5 handbook, because she spent, talk about benign neglect, I was left alone in the car but a parked car around Fulham and Chelsea in London <laughs> while my mum went out to lunch. She's an excellent mother, I hasten to add. Mum, if you're listening, I love you and all of you. I well. love her too. But I spent a lot of time sitting in the front of a parked car in the <laughs> 70s. I'm going to assume with a cracked window and with nothing to entertain me sure. other than the handbook that came with the Renault 5 that we drove. And my mum would come back to find me. Changing a tire. <laughs> Only anything so useful, but just sort of looking up blankly as I turn to page forty-eight. Like this of the chassis description. It's a little. I want to say it's a little dry. It's dull. I can't follow the narrative all that well, but it's available. So, uh, as a precocious, uh, there's a fellow precocious reader at this table. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. It's a miracle I'm not a mechanic. Yeah. But here we are doing my podcast. Uh, so you think you read it age maybe eight or nine, yeah. and then when do you think you saw the movie? Mm, oh, much later. Um, I, I saw the movie far, and I remember it was one of those things where I'm sure my father was like, you should see this movie, it's right. a classic, whatever. But I'd read it several times by then. Mm-hmm. So I had a very calcified, in a way. I mean, it, it was ever 
evergreen in the sense that I always got something new out of it, Mm -hmm. but I really uh, pictured the street the same way, pictured the chicken wire ham costume the same way, Uh I pictured Boo Radley's house the same Uh way, everything about it I pictured the same way. Right. You know. Did you identify with Scout? Was it the vigorous sense of social justice that I know and love in you? Yes. Is that what it was? I think so. I think... Thank you. That's very generous as well. Um, I think I loved the fact that she was a girl like me who was not a conventional girl. Mm. Wasn't, you know, her best friend. She worshipped her older brother. I didn't have an older brother. But, she, you know, Dill and her brother were her whole world. Mm. And, um, and I just loved the fact that she was... Uh, intrepid and way too articulate, let's be fair, for a six-year-old. I mean, in her narrative <laughs> sure. voice. And seeing this whole very, very adult story unfold through a child's eyes, it just, as a point of access, to me, it's a, it, makes, it makes the story available to every, to every reader at every mm-hmm. age, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Certainly as an adult, you read it slightly differently. There are things that are over your head when you read it at that age. But I, it's the one book which I, I've told you I, I've, well, it's not the only book, but it's one of the books I have read to each one of my kids mm. at a certain time in their life. You word read it for word. entirely. Entirely. To all three. Yes. That's But wonderful. at different times and yeah. not all at once. Yeah. As an audio book, did you ever, or did you just read it to No, me? no. Out loud. Out loud. Yeah. Beautiful. Voices, as you can imagine, you know. What? Not as much fun with To, to Kill a Mockingbird because it's serious, but Confederacy of Dunces, same thing. Oh, just yeah, the, the voices. That. And that, that I would read to them in a group just because, you know. God, Confederacy of Dunces, that's massive. We're no, but not the whole book, just segments that were especially hilarious. I didn't mean to jump forward. No, I'm that's saying, fine. In terms of just reading aloud. I had somebody, and this is probably 10 years, this is probably dates me. 10 years or something, but at some point someone said that it's important to read out loud to your kids that's probably since been disproven. I don't really I, I no, care no, one no, way or the other. No, 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 not at all. It, it, it's now so clinical that they say that if you can, I mean, literally, you know, people are out in the world advocating for young teen mums and things, saying if nothing else, if you do nothing with your children, can you read to them for 15 minutes a day? Exactly. So it's not only been, you know, you're not dating yourself. Okay. If anything, you, are, you, you were, you know, they were ahead of the time and now they are absolutely categorical about this, that oh. reading aloud to your children is... If you do that and nothing else, you have given them bonding, you have given them social skills, you have given them emotional closeness because odds are that child has had to be in your lap in order mm-hmm. to read to them. So there is literally a physical closeness. It's quiet. Volume is guaranteed to be down. Like way transcending just basic literacy skills. There is... Uh, blanking on the word but there is an an emotional connection that's Mm. happening between mother and child that they say this reading aloud combines and sort of coalesces all these different things that are absolutely essential for early learning and interesting early development i mean literally development of the brain so congratulations on winning oh Oh, I never got an award. I never got an award. I, I, I don't know if I can your see Your award is your awesome children. <laughs> but I, did, so tell me, why? what makes To Kill a Mockingbird formative in the sense of how do you feel like that moment or the reading of that or the rereading of it shaped you? How is that in your DNA, do you think? I think because, well, first of all, it's a story that takes place in the South. And the South, I was raised in Boston, but my entire family on both sides was 
southern in root and so i always felt a sort of um like i was an expat from the south it was something i a badge i wore with pride as a teenager and i've since become had a more complicated interest in it but i think the story felt as fresh and relevant then as it does now more so even Mm -hmm. that there is and always has been systemic racial injustice i mean not to just you know use a phrase that's used now a lot but I wanted them to understand that you could fight for what was right and still lose mm. and that it was still important to fight for it. Yeah. And I found the class issues really fascinating. Even this at, 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 at that young an age. Oh, uh, well, at that... Okay, well, it, no. Okay, at that age, I'm sure I was obsessed mostly with just the injustice of it. Yeah. It's just not fair. Yeah. It's that child, that cri de cur, it's yeah. not fair. Yeah. And it's not fair. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. And that's, that's that's what the that's what the book is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it also. Um, I loved the scenes in the courtroom. I found them electrifying. Mm-hmm. Even then, the drama, the sheer drama of it, mm-hmm. and then the sort of ways in which they were personally imperiled. I mean, she was imperiled when she was in the costume, yes. but also that's the sort of the ghost of Boo Radley, which. Yeah. How could that not ignite a child's imagination when, you know, at least, well, I should speak for myself, I grew up in a house that was over 300 years old, and as we know, we all know what's living in it. Yeah, we won't talk about that, (laughs) Um, but um, I think that that sort of eerie unknown, well, and, and I mean, obviously it's not a spoiler alert, but... That, that that kind of that, that that you're faced with your own judgment in the process that you too judge and misjudge mm. and it's not necessarily that you're being racist in that moment but you're certainly assuming someone is up to something or doing something wrong and they turn out to be heroic mm. and so I don't know I, I loved all those inherent contradictions mm. and I mean at the, at the end of the day it's just an extraordinarily well-told story but it had all this substance. It was so substantive. Did I ask you the last time, and I forget if I did, well, either way, we didn't get it on tape. Uh, did you read Go oh, Tell you, a Watchman? You did You did ask me, and I said go I did not. Go Watchman. Yeah, go, or you could ask him too. Yeah. Um, I did not. I did not. I did not because... Because oh, you didn't want to. I didn't want to. Because it's one of your five formative books. And I revere that book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't... It's sort of, you know, like when you meet sometimes an author that you just worship Mm -hmm. in real life or an artist or somebody else, a politician, anybody that you've held in such high esteem. And then, I don't know, I I just didn't want anything to pollute that, Mm. the purity of that love. You didn't, you didn't miss anything. It was, I I read it out of curiosity because I loved To Kill a Mockingbird, but it wasn't formative for me in that way, but I revered it. But I, in a funny way, I didn't have so much reverence that I couldn't read Ghost Out of Watchmen. And it was, it was completely other. It's a completely other experience. They're older and it's, and, and it's a different Atticus. It's not so similar that you feel like there needs to be a compare and contrast. It feels like Mm. a completely, completely separate novel. But you're good. You don't need to read it. I read it for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I won't. Let's talk about your next book. I was thrilled to see this one. The book you gave me was Inferno <laughs> by Dante Alighieri, which is part of the Divine Comedy. Yes. And it was written sometime in the 14th century. 
This is so fucking impressive that this is one of your books. Can no, it, it, well, it, it, it's, it's impressive because it's the maybe the only... It represents both an enormous failure on my part and sort of my grandest passion. Just a little history. I read it in... Uh, I went to high school, as you know, in Brookline with your husband. With my husband. <laughs> and many of our friends. And um, I was in AP European, history, uh, European Literature. I was a terrible student. And this book... Like, you know, when this happens, your, your brain lights up, right? It's, yes. it just, it, it's, it was a lit. Yeah. The minute I started reading and they were at the dark again, back to Boo Radley, like they're standing in front of the woods. Yeah. What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. I have to know. And I just cherished every, dis- every canto, every descent, every circle they made, the people they met, the things they experienced. I was like... This is a fascinating hell. And I was also confused and frustrated by it because, as I said before, you know, when you grow up in a sort of Judeo-Christian tradition, well, it gets back to that justice issue. I couldn't square with the fact the fact that, you know, a rapist or a murderer would be at a higher level uh-huh. than someone in the pit, in the icy pit with Lucifer. Because who is in the icy pit Well, the person in the icy pit is the person who has affected the most... I mean, it was obviously very political for the time. Sure. The person who has destroyed the most lives through their actions. So it's numerical. Yes. You get... The more people you hurt, the deeper you go. I believe so. And if there are any Dante scholars listening, (laughs) and I'm wrong... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's how I remember it. An addendum. If you're a Dante scholar, please let me know. I'd love to have you as a show guest on the show. Anyway, carry on. You can show me up. Um, But I I found it so creative. I thought it was just so... um, I kind of loved the the punitive uh, and the, the sort of... The hopelessness that coexisted with the fact that we knew at the end of the day... Virgil was really a guide, and he was taking Dante down. Dante says to Virgil in the beginning, you know, I don't want to go... And this is this place stinks. It's gross. There's all these disgusting farting demons. Like, get me out of here. And that's the, that's the paraphrase. And no, that's, Vir- that's, that's true. That's verbatim. That's Nancy quoting. That's, I'm just quoting the original Italian. Um, and he says... Virgil says, no, no, no. You can't... Because he's like, I want to go to paradise. And he says, no... You can't do that until you have gone to the deepest pit. Right. And then and, you can go. Right. And yeah. as a metaphor, I just found that very compelling. I yeah. think that's true. I do. I think that's what rock bottom is all about. Yes, indeed. And um, so anyway, so I found that very compelling as an idea. Yeah. The reason it was a massive failure was because I thought my very uh, eccentric teacher would find it charming if I, instead of a final paper, submitted actually an etching, a drawing of frozen skulls in hell and that I was how mistaken. did that not win you a scholarship that sounds oh. fucking brilliant to me no he I did not got a C plus <laughs> you got a C I got a C plus yeah no way yeah and I, he handed me a copy of Strunk and White and basically was like <laughs> get started it's, it's a little late but get started <laughs> So, um, but I just, over the years, I went, I would, my son right now is all equally obsessed with the book. How old? Which son? Luke. Mm -hmm. He's 17. He knows far more than I do as he's. And what was his introduction to it? Through you? Well, he's always heard me talk about it, but he has actually opted to take a class specifically devoted, an entire semester devoted to the Inferno. How interesting. Is it a literature class? Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. So he's really, 
you know, immersed, immersed, in truly immersed in it. Exactly. In the Divine Comedy or in just into the in Inferno? I believe it's the, well, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's just the Inferno. Well, And here's the other thing I loved about it. And this also may or may not be true to scholars listening, but I was told that the Inferno was written in sort of either, I would say vernacular Italian, mm-hmm. uh, street Italian. Sure. There was a lot of like, quote unquote, foul language. Yeah. That Purgatorio was sort of everyday uh, speech. And then, of course, Paradiso was written in this incredibly sort of erudite, elevated prose, etc. And I just also thought that I thought, you know, I want to be with the guttural. Again, it's like I want to be in that dark space and and listening and, and looking and learning and... But with that thread of... It's reminding me of Shakespeare, who wrote all his, you know, street characters, his grave diggers, his gatekeepers, his all the, like, nurse... Working all people. Of, exactly. All the working people speak in uh, prose. Mm-hmm. And everyone else speaks in iambic pentameter. Or the higher up you go, uh, the higher up you go in the in the social structure of Shakespeare. So, right. so the more elevated your speech becomes. But you know, the, it's so glorious both on the page and when you see a play. It's so wonderful the difference and the juxtaposition of, you know, the guards on the, the opening of Hamlet saying who goes there and what noise is this, and and then you know you go into sort of Hamlet's extraordinary proper iambic pentameter and all of that prose it's it's just such an interesting thing and I'm sure Dante had a hand in that because Inferno was such an important text to Shakespeare well it's conceptual yeah I mean it, it's a core it's conceptual choice yeah which is a really important one it just underscores you know the exigency that he's trying to to put forward do you uh, was that the first last time you illustrated a book mm-hmm. as it were uh, well I think it was the first and last okay. I think that was my my maiden voyage that ended in okay, in just drowning. But no, but I'm interested because there's so much of the Inferno that's so visceral, as well as being political and sometimes dry and slightly listy in yeah. my experience, oh, yeah. of it, my memory of it. Instead of listing of you know completely specific, slightly recondite Italian political <laughs> d- dastardly people of the time, right? Who we don't know who they are. We don't know who they were right. exactly. Yeah. But it is visceral in the experience of it in the sense sensorial time that we spend down down in the pits of hell your work is so visceral and so emotional and so and I'm talking just about the drawings here forget even the immersiveness of your VR but your charcoal it's like watching bodies being pulled apart your body almost gets Mm. pulled apart in the experience of looking at one of your drawings I'm wondering if the if there is an element of the struggle of Inferno or the need to emerge from it or the need to go into the bottom of hell and then come up through the top I'm wondering if it consciously or not informs how you draw what you draw how you approach to drawing is incredibly perceptive and it's 100% 100% true. In fact, I had a whole series that I called Virgil. For precisely that reason, I really wanted, I really sort of trusted, well, I guess I was trusting myself. Mm-hmm. I was trusting my my own in- intuitive impulses, and I trusted the paper and the, the graphite to sort of lead me mm-hmm. where it would. And... That so the graphite be, was sorry. I always keep saying charcoal. No, everybody thinks it's charcoal yeah. because I use the literally like the darkest graphite possible. Right. Um, I've never used a light graphite to save my life. So um, you, so your graphite was Virgil. 
my graphite drawings were of Virgil. That's yeah, amazing. because I thought I have to trust this guide. I have to trust that where it's taking you where it will take me, and it may be a combination of all things. Yeah. It may have that that contradiction may inhere in, and I hope it does uh-huh. in those forms. Because if it's just bleak or despairing or sad, it to me there's. That's not a place I want to spend time, sure. and it's there's less texture. Mm-hmm. When you introduce the tension of escape, struggle, then you're dealing with something that's very human and I think relatable to most people. Right. Will you make sure that we have the link to the Virgil drawings so that <laughs> when we put this on the website, we can you can click and see the drawings as well? Yes, absolutely, okay. 100%. That's what I want. I'm excited to talk about this third book because your third book, The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning by Maggie Nelson, published in 2012. This is one of the first books that you ever recommended to me. And now you're like, who is this crazy person? No, I wasn't. I was just so thrilled. First of all, anyone who recommends me books that I've never heard of is just thrilling to or me. Or that you've never read, which would be a miracle. Well, no, not That's that I've never read. That's but, but, but also just authors that I've just never, ever heard of. It's just, it's like handing me a whole cake and mm. then closing the door, which shows you how much I love food. <laughs> but, but it really does. It's just glorious. And mm. I knew we were kindred. I knew when Davy introduced us that you were going to become my friend and no longer his, which let's <laughs> just face it, is the case there. I've said it. It's on the podcast now. It's now, it's, it's, it's official. It's, Yep, stamped. Um, but this was a real... This is Anyway, it was unsurprising and made me smile when I saw this on your list. So tell those who don't know who Maggie Nelson is oh. what this wonderful manifesto is about. Why the art of cruelty? What What is in... in a paragraph. Oh God! What is the um, what is her thesis? Well, if you can, I don't know that I can be if that I can even reduce it or do it any justice. I will say just from the outset that she is a prolific writer. She is one of my favorite writers. She's one of the and she may in fact be the only writer I've ever written an actual letter of gratitude and appreciation. Uh, gratitude to and appreciation for and you're not supposed to end I know from Strunk and White you don't end a sentence with a a dangling Um, but she this particular so I've read almost everything she's written almost everything and each book this is a recent influence so each book has played a different role for example her book Bluettes has a passage that inspired a VR drawing and a whole other series of drawings around that Mm -hmm. Um, it actually was this is very sort of simulacrumy but it was about it was a Gertrude Stein poem that she was talking about and I took sort of both the Gertrude Stein the the seed of the Gertrude Stein poem as interpreted by Maggie Nelson as the foundation of that that series but this book in particular as you can see it's just I mean it's just disgusting what I've done to it Um, that is a passionately loved book that we're looking at here this is underlined underscored with different pens which means it's been read multiple times and it looks like my books at Oxford used to look when I had to write a thesis about them, and you've never written a thesis about this. So, what, what, what is it about her? What is it about this book? What is it? This what is communicates? So funny. It's so funny that you just. This is literally what we just discussed. So I just opened it up to this page. Read it. Whatever and she you says. Uh, she says, true enough, but if the cruelty in Troki were simply a reiteration of the amorality and nihilism of a junkie's universe, it would be a bore. Troki's cruelty is of a more metaphysical variety. It is the cruelty of leading himself and the reader through passage after passage of compelling philosophical rumination and psychological insight, then snapping us back to nasty animal need, to score, to fuck, to flee, to forget, which is always standing by to nullify mind and heart. 
So who's Trokey? What's what? Well, of what, course now I can't. Uh, Scottish writer. Oh, okay. He wrote a book called Kane's Book in 1960. I see. Um, so, but what she's what she's saying, if I get this right, what her point is: how do we? How does the artist involve us in cruelty in a work of art that might have violence in it, and then? Yet, without perpetuating a the cruelty psychology of, of a, a pathology of cruelty. So the, what she goes on to say is that that is the inexorable cruel struggle of being enthralled to a substance, especially one that alleviates pain as, at the same time that it causes it. And I think that that's the, the if there's a thesis at all to me, it's that, you know, cru- cruelty in art for cruelty's sake is, well, for one thing, as I said before, boring. Yeah. But it also can do damage. Right. If you instead allow it to coexist with either countervailing forces, not in a binary way, but if you allow it to be textured and nuanced, mm-hmm. you can, I mean, she talks about this um, theoretical idea of a neutral. If you can occupy that neutral space where things can come and go and shift in and out, you know, you've but actually... you, the viewer, have agency where you have a, an, you have a choice about how you're experiencing that? For one thing. But Yes. Right. Or what you're given, what you're offered. Right. Of course, you can always choose to throw a book against the wall, which is one of the questions I love that you ask. Um, you, you always yeah. have the choice to turn away. Yes. But in terms of making art that addresses some of the crueler points of life, the unfairness mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. you know, the lack of justice... How do you, and to my mind, it's actually a way of, it's a conversation starter. How do you engage someone in dialogue if you either, one, are merely didactic, or tell them it's one way, or you say, it's all dark. Right. It's the end of the conversation. Yeah. It's not a conversation. Right. If you instead engage curiosity, if you instead offer alternate points of view, or you... Suspend judgment. Yes. Or if you, you, you allow... Again, countervailing forces to coexist right. in a state of unsettled tension mm-hmm. that becomes porous mm-hmm. in a way that allows different people of different backgrounds in and out. And you can grapple with it, I think, in a more, again, back to humanism, in a more humanistic way, mm-hmm. in a more honest way, in a more authentic way than if you are. It's one of the reasons why I, I just don't. I'm so turned off by didactics of any kind. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be told yes. uh, how to do something, what to do, or what, what to think about something, what to think about something. Right. And uh, and even even Jaron J- J- um, Lanier talks about how science is endlessly unanswerable. Right. And anyone who says that we've answered something is lying. Hmm. And I would say that that's not her point per se, but it's something that I really think about in in making work. And that's why this is inspiring to me that you can and 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 also sort of coming to grips with the fact that you might be drawn to. The Inferno, or Boo Radley, or sure. whatever, but there might also be more to it than that. Right. And it's not, I don't know, It's a, she actually, in a funny way, I think, um, and in the most generous, generous way possible, frees you from judgment. I mean, she's incredible. Frees you, the artist, from the responsibility of judgment, or frees the, the experience? Both. Right. And I think that it is a reckoning, of course, but it's a very generous reckoning. Mm-hmm. And she is incisive beyond words, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody wields the yes. pen well, like, ferociously. more. Yes. Exactly. I yeah. mean, there's not a, a word is spared um, that doesn't need to be there. And she's funny and she's abject and she's dirty and she's... I mean, I don't know if you read her um, 
you read her essay on Prince. I think it yes. was in, I mean, it's just. Yes. No, how could that ever be? Yeah. Nobody could ever do it better. Guys, find the essay on yeah. Prince. And if I can, if I remember, I will put it in. It's in the New Yorker. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's extraordinary. I believe it's in the New Yorker. So I just said that with a lot of authority. As my father always <laughs> says, seldom right, never in doubt. Um, <laughs> which goes back to didactics. So I clearly um, am merely reacting to myself. But um, yeah, no, I think that this is really... Oh, she Again, here, she's quoting Patti Smith. In art and dream, you may proceed with abandon. In life, may you proceed with balance and stealth. Hmm. You know, it's that... But she, it's such an interesting thing, because I more and more as we're talking, I'm realizing this, you... That we're, you are saying the same thing about art that we all agree is what makes great literature. It's just so interesting to sort of extend it wider into the visual field as well, because the greats of literature, I think, are the ones who whose compassion is so boundless that their willingness to stand in the shoes of absolutely fucking anyone, look at Adam Johnson in Fortune oh, Smiles, stepping, choosing to step into the shoes of a paedophile yes. and tell a story from that point of view, the most heinous, reviled figure in society, mm-hmm. and choose willingly to stand in those shoes and tell us a, a story from his point of view and as a parent but you don't have to be a parent but as a parent it was one of the most difficult things I've ever ever willingly read I put it down twice and then I came back to it because the skill was so extraordinary the temerity and then the absolute execution of it was just so breathtaking Um, well everything he does is everything everything is extraordinary that he touches and in such diverse ways but but my point is is that I think what's interesting and I'm, I'm sort of extrapolating as I speak is that Maggie Nelson and he are sort of talking about the same thing which is you have to stand in a neutral space and from that space, you can tell any story. Yes. But you cannot be in judgment in the telling of it. You cannot yes. decide your point of view. As an actor, I relate. I can play the most heinous villain imaginable. But I, Sonia, have to believe that this person has a point of view, a place to stand in, a reason they're behaving like they are. Absolutely. I, I, I have to give them the backstory that justifies how they've arrived at this villainous frame of mind. Because if I arrive with judgment, then I give the audience nowhere to go and no story to tell and nothing of their own to supply. And as an author, the great authors are the ones who say, I'm going to stand in these shoes and I'm going to let you decide. You see what you see. I will offer what I can. And it's interesting because we think of as... I don't know. I think of literature as offering words, offering being both reified things that denote certain things and yet we all agree that none of us is reading the same book we're Mm-mm. all having our own experience of that book exactly so how real are these words how reified are they really and by the same token art this visual medium this much more slippery hard to pin down hard to denote hard to know what it is uh medium is in its same way, saying, I offer you this, view it as you choose, come to it, but I have to stand in one fixed place in order to tell this story. And in that fixed place, you not only have to be 100% authentic, which is to say, if you are giving voice to something that perhaps you may have shame around or whatever, Mm -hmm. you, again, as you just said much more eloquently, can't be in judgment about it, Mm -hmm. because other people won't relate to it. Right. 
And they will smell it. Yeah. They will smell it. I'm thinking about that exhibition you took me to see when we went to the Hammer. Radical Women. Radical oh. Women, which was wonderful. And I'm so glad you took me. I have not forgotten it. I keep, I referenced you doing a text message the other day about a piece of work of yours. But it was... Um, I'm going to bastardize this, but it was uh, Latin American women from all countries in America, uh, in South America rather, and I think it was from the 60s, 70s. There was, a, was there was a specific time. I can't period. remember the exact decade span, but yes, it wasn't. Put it this way: uh, yeah. most of Latin America was under the thumb of a dictatorship of uh-huh. some sort yep. during that that era. And bravery, women, women more than any, and add to add to dictatorship Catholicism, and <laughs> you've got uh, and machismo, which is just endemic down there. Mm-hmm. Is you've got a, a seriously oppressed underclass, and it was work just produced by these women and it was so clamorous it was so loud some of it was so obnoxious and in your face and too Mm. much and some of it was so harrowingly brilliant unforgettable but the unforgettable stuff was the stuff that that stepped this extraordinary middle line of saying here I offer you this but I'm not going to show you me being raped by six paramilitary but I'm going to offer you but I might show you the hole where I laid after the it hole happened where I laid. exactly the ambiguity of that right it's exactly right it all comes back to this idea of ambiguity not as a as a means of being inarticulate, no, and not in, not no. um, and not ambivalent, no, but ambiguous, yeah, as essential. With as you said, that incredible compassion and, in my opinion, courage to tell Shed. a story, yeah, 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 or to resist, or to, I mean, those many of those women took their, you know, took their own lives, right? Well, no, they put they put their lives in grave danger, right, right. by making the work that they did, right, and or had to do it anonymously or whatever, you yeah. know. They're doing it for exactly the right reasons. Yeah. The stakes should be that high, though, to write. Yeah. You know, you should write as though your life were depending on it, and you should paint, too. The, Annie Dillard, another person I yes. love and who I learned about through Maggie through Nelson. Who she I, was her teacher, right? I think she was your teacher, and she also, by the way, dedicates she taught, Art of Cruelty to yeah, Annie Dillard. She, she was says, taught by Annie Dillard at Wesleyan. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. So she says, for Annie Dillard, who advises otherwise. <laughs> what a great dedication. That's a good But of course, when I read, it was clear Annie Dillard was important to her, so I did, I went and got The Abundance, which I also, we, we read which we as read well, which we loved. Yeah. That is another book, and it's not on my list, but in that book, she says when she's talking about, she's referencing Thoreau, and as a writer, that you need to know your own, it's, it's actually the whole essay, it's a essay on writing. Yeah. She says you have to know your own bone. Yes. Nod it, dig it up, and then gnaw on it again. Yeah. You know, know your bone, go back to it. And she says something, and now I'll totally mangle it, but it's something like, what would you say to a dying person that would not enrage them? Mm. And that, that that should be, the, the, back to the stakes idea, that right. that's, that's what if you, you have a story, you, guess what? If you read To Kill a Mockingbird Before You Die, you're not yeah. going to feel enraged. Yeah. You're going to feel lucky and grateful yeah. that you got to read that book before you died. It's a great, oh, I'm going to write that one down since I've started writing so hard. I'm going to write that one down. What would you say to a dying person that would not enrage them? Yeah. Well, those really are. That's R- a great right? way. And she says you were set here to give voice to your own astonishment. Yeah. Which all all of these writers are giving voice to their own astonishment. Yeah. As are you, as, you know, anyone who does that. Yeah. Let's talk about your next book, Confederacy of Dances Mm -hmm. by John Kennedy Toole, which was published in 1980, posthumously, years after he wrote it, 10 years after his suicide. 
I love the backstory of this, which anyone who knows the book knows, but for those of you who don't, John Kennedy Toole lived with his mother and was a thwarted writer. This was the only book he wrote, and he committed suicide, and his mother would not give up on getting this published and relentlessly sent it absolutely everywhere and eventually took it to Tulane University because they lived in New Orleans, which is where the book's set, and Walker Percy happened to be professor of... English literature there at the time. Walker Percy had just won the National Book Award for The Movie Girl, which is a beautiful book that I know. Which I just, just bought. Literally just so bought. Yeah. Um, and Walker Percy read it because he just was being bullied by a bereft mother <laughs> and couldn't put it down. And then between them, they got it published, which is a, just a lovely indication. And then it won the Pulitzer. Is. And then it won the Pulitzer. Yeah. Oh, just that. As yeah, just that. I, th- I believe that it did. Yeah. Tell me why. Tell me when you read it. I read it again as a young adult. I read it after college. I read it... Actually, Jason always talked... My husband always talked about it and as one of his favorite books. And the shared trait I have with all of the people close to me is a intolerance for um, earnestness. Yes. So so immediately... And I was raised... One of my, my best friend really growing up was my grandfather, uh, who was the most irreverent person I've ever known. And he was a flawed person in other ways... Um, he was from the South, but he, he was the most irreverent person. And so I grew up, and my mother too, is just wildly irreverent. Mm. So I grew up with, um, well, that was a priority and uh-huh. um, a bias, let's <laughs> and call it. continues to be. Continues to be. <laughs> and I picked up this book and I thought, where have you been my entire life? Wow. Ignatius Riley. Wow. Where have you been? Mm. And I, as I said to you before, I, I just talk about writing yourself into the text. I mean... I became Ignatius. I felt like Ignatius. I still feel like Ignatius. How? Like today I was Ignatius. I love, I when love I, that this pencil-thin woman in front of me <laughs> thinks that Ignatius Riley, this depressive, <laughs> enormous, chaotic slob. It's very gassy. It's wonderful. He's, he's just always railing against the world. But I feel that's what I relate to is his... his um, you know, he too, he experiences... He's quite judgmental, actually. Yes. He's so judgmental. Yes. He's fiercely judgmental, which I have to confess I am too. I mean, I've memorized certain passages from that book when I encounter certain works of art. Um, <laughs> I want to say them out loud, and I don't. But um, he's also desperate, and he's railing against the the world and what he perceives to be you know, his, own, his own victimhood. But he has a real moral sense of justice. And so I'm just, I really, and he's wildly articulate, and and he's a disaster. He's just a walking disaster. I mean, you know, everything's just unemployable. He's always screaming about his pyloric valve, you know, and... <laughs> Um, offending people and, and you know he's just the ultimate misfit and I think maybe, and you felt like a misfit I still do I mean I think I think most artists on some level do um, but he just I don't know he was so vivid to me and for the longest time I remember actually looking at the illustrations and feeling frustrated with them because again right. you know it wasn't what he looked no my Ignatius doesn't have disgusting sort of they made his lips look like hot dogs. They're just disgusting, right? And then he has that horrible sort of brush, uh, you know, broom mustache, yeah. and then the hat and thing. He's really, really grotesque. In my head, uh, I just have to say, Walker Percy described him so beautifully, so I have to just please offer this just quote. Purge. He described him as a slob extraordinary, a mad Oliver Hardy, mm. a fat Don Quixote, a perverse Thomas Aquinas yes. rolled into one. Yes. For me, and I haven't read it, 
very recently, but I you know, put it in the last 10 years. For me, he is completely fused with that, with the lead character of that wonderful podcast, S-Town. He's probably yes. Latin Batama yes. to me. He is that tragic and brilliant, tragic, brilliant mm. philosopher convinced of his own ingenuity. Outraged by yeah, everything. Outraged by everything. Maverick persona and ego but somehow deserves them at the same time even though they are grossly inflated like there's something to me they have melded now of course I'll go and reread the confederacy of dancers and realise oh no wait they, they're completely completely no, different but, but in my brain something. there's something yes. southern and eccentric and unique yes. about both of these people that the eastern seaboard does not produce and nor does the granola fed California <laughs> No, no, because there's so much color and flavor and irrepressible. Well, it's that outrage again, but but they're never dull. Yeah. That's the thing. They yeah. don't commit the sin of dullness yeah. or earnestness. Yeah. And his letters to Myrna the Minx are uh, at times pornographic. I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. And I mean, that is one of the first... That book and I would say Foreskin's Lament, which I also highly recommend by <laughs> Shalom Aslander. I read that as <laughs> well. <laughs> I read that at work. I read that on season two of The Catch, and I can't tell you how many crew walked past and raised a serious fucking eyebrow. It oh. got so bad that I was like, "Listen, it's comic. Listen, it's 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 really funny. They're, they're, they're sort of short, it's autobiographical. Oh, fuck it, I'm just going to read it in my trailer. I cannot face explaining to one more person why I'm why, laughing, why, I'm and why the title. Why the and title. here again, we have someone railing against yeah. his culture, his tradition, God. Yeah. But those two made me laugh so hard, I, I literally cried. And I think when you can make someone laugh on paper. Yeah, to rest. What a feat. Yeah. Again, I mean, I just wept with wept with laughter. Yeah. Th- throughout the entire book. Let's talk about your last one, because that one just made me, made both of us weep oh. with laughter. Your last book is Tattoos on the Heart, The yes. Power of Boundless Compassion by Father Greg Boyle. This was published in 2010. Yeah, also recent. So I read this again thanks to you I still live in the hope because I'm emailing with his office weekly that we get him on the podcast Father Greg Boyle just for those who don't know is this extraordinary Jesuit priest who began uh, who started working at the uh, church downtown and created Homeboy Industries which is the collection now of companies that will help get gang members who want to leave the gangs out of the streets and into gainful employment. It began as a tattoo removal parlor because the extremely prominent, largely facial tattoos that these gangs had meant that they were walking into job agencies or, you know, any sort of job opportunity and being written off before they'd even opened their mouths. So the tattoo removal parlor became this genuine practical way to strip them rid them of some of this identity and then start training them up it's now homeboy industries has a bakery a catering company a mechanic uh, a dry cleaning company i mean I, they, they have completely proliferated and exploded and all thanks to this extraordinary man so i offer that just by way of some background on who this just this modern day saint really yeah. is Tell me how you got to him or the book or how did it arrive in your life? Um, I had a friend who was a board member and at the time, I I had been sort of circling around, you know, lots of things compete for our attention. I had always been interested. I'd heard an NPR story on him. I'd always thought, well, this is somebody who's really, this is a priest 
I am admittedly skeptical of organized religion, but here's a priest who is doing the work. Yes. He's rolling up his sleeves. He's he's doing the work. Yeah. So I'm interested. Yeah. And I loved just the idea of what he was doing. Anyway, they they had had this fundraising crisis, and the friends said, "Come to my house. You'll meet Greg, Father Greg, or G as they call him, um, but don't come without a checkbook." And I thought, as I usually do, I try to do my research. So mm-hmm. I down, you know, I got the book. I bought the book, um, which he says he signed for me that day. Oh, um, wow. Certainly meeting him was the clincher, but even prior to that, I knew I actually didn't even have a choice. It's one of those things. I read the book, and at one point he talks about, um, again, he's a radical, okay? He's radical in the way that I I imagine the figure of Christ was a radical, sure. which is what makes you know, these ridiculous self-avowed Christians, they wouldn't have anything to do with Christ right. if he showed up on their doorstep. Right. They wouldn't recognize him. No. He was a radical. Yeah. Okay? He didn't want to hang out with people like them. But anyway, um, he. well, first of all, this is a book, again, that made me laugh as much as it made me sob hmm. with compassion yeah. and with um, because of his compassion. Mm-hmm. In other words, he did that thing that you talked about. He, he puts you in his authenticity, allows you to experience these sort of universal truths that are so, so different from a lot of our experience, right? He allows you to experience them by being so unbelievably specific. Yes. I mean, that's why what I exactly. find so extraordinary about the book is he's talking, they are chapters and they may as well just be a series of homilies or sermons that exactly. he's given. But they, they take a story or three from a gang member uh, and, you know, ranging from falling in love with a lovely guy who then is gunned down in the street three months later to going into prisons and speaking to young guys who are in there but desperate to get out and promise and promise that they will come and find Father G and eventually do or don't. Mm -hmm. But the... What I found so moving about the book, because I went off and read it as soon as I saw it on your list... What I found so moving about the book was that they they couldn't be more specific and further from my very white privileged experience. And yet the message that he's offering and extrapolating, but without hammering you with it in this this gifted way, because he is a literature major as well as a a Jesuit priest, is the universality of what's happening. That that what's making these gang members is their their sense of isolation, their sense that they are already rejected by society. So fuck it if they're on the act if they're this liminal who cares what their actions are yeah. and his of his point is he says we should get this printed on t-shirts you can't disappoint us enough yeah that's his that's the sort of yeah. motto you you can fuck up and come back and come back and come back at home boy they will never ever shut the door on you because god will never ever shut the door on you yeah. and the wider implication of that was what i found so beautiful the idea that we can continually reject ourselves those mm-hmm. of us that don't embrace an organized religion mm-hmm. but reject and push away these parts of ourselves that we don't like that we'd rather not you know that we'd rather not own the i don't know the lazy part or our ambition because it's so unseemly to own it or our uh, weight or our failure at parenting or whatever these parts of ourselves that we would rather not own and and his his message to me is so transcendent which is you you keep opening your arms and you bring that piece to lie down yeah. with you and that piece like own the whole of you or you are not whole or you are incomplete well man that's what the definition of boundless compassion and and he says no matter whatness the no matter whatness of it right. but the thing that that really got me by the throat was this passage where he talks about people judging 
poor people, mm. which happens. Have, have Let me see if I can find you it. Can find I'm it. sure I marked it, but he talks about judgment and which I think you hear a lot, especially today, you know, why don't they pull themselves up by their boots? Anybody who's spent any time in a community that is as disadvantaged as, as gang communities mm-hmm. are knows that's not, it's not that someone hasn't pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, right. that odds are stacked against against them on, again, back to systemic Racial, yeah. social injustice, all these things. But anyway, he says we rather than judging the poor. Oh, this is it. I found it. Oh, good. Here is what we seek: a compassion that can stand in awe at uh, at what the poor have to carry, rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Mm. And that's the thing. That's at the heart of it. Yeah. You stand in awe at what they have to carry versus how they carry it, mm. and that. It's subtle and it's delicate, but that switch, mm. if more people practice that, mm. and it's easy not to practice, it's so much easier just to judge, mm. we would have such a different society mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have the kind of disparity we have and we wouldn't have the violence and we wouldn't have so much of what's wrong mm. right now. And so I felt this just literally spoke right to my heart. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, it just literally was like, it reached out from the page, grabbed me by the heart and was like, okay, I'm not letting go until you show up. Yeah. So I did, I showed up and I said, I have this crazy idea for an art collaboration. I'm I'm probably deluding myself that you'd even be interested, but what do you think? And he just immediately, of course, come into my office. We'll talk about it. Let's make it happen. And what did you do? Tell us what um, you did. At the time, I had a, a series I was doing of actually about actually violence and beauty and uh, coexisting mm-hmm. at once. Mm-hmm. And it was called Bullet Blossoms. And I would shoot my actually with bullets my paintings. Mm-hmm. And then I would paint blossoms around the bullet holes that sort of exit wounds. And we ended up calling the class Exit Wounds. Mm-hmm. So it was a collaboration where... Um, I had I encouraged um, a lot of these formerly incarcerated wonderful people to tell their stories through collage any way they felt comfortable. Many of them were very practiced artists. Many of them weren't. Mm. Didn't matter. That's mm. the great democratic <laughs> benefit of collage. Sure. There's no right or wrong. And then I would say to them, okay, you tell me where you want me to place the shot. And I will shoot it there. And then you tell me what kind of blossom you want me to paint around it. And I will paint it there. And we had a show of these works. So I, I mean, I really was just a technician. I didn't have any, I was just helping. I mean, obviously that, that was well, the, not going to be the entire thing. I, but, yeah. I, well, but I mean, you know, I, I, I was there really to encourage and we ended up having a show in a space, a, an artist run space done by Skid Row. And it was, it got all this press and everyone was able for the first time to see literally their work mm. celebrated, sold, all the proceeds went back to Homeboy Industries. It was sort of my attempt at, at, because I couldn't give, I couldn't write a big check, but I could help raise money through art. So that's sort of how I I did it. So inspiring. Such an inspiring story. They changed my life. They changed my life. They changed my life. And I have to say it remains, it's one of those things that I, uh, I can't even talk about it. It just meant a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. And always will. I, I, I'm dying to go back, actually. I'd love to do a, a VR project. I've actually talked to him about doing that. Have you? And I just haven't. Yeah, we, we too have been struggling. To get, he's a very busy man. He's in great very, demand. Very hard um, But yeah, no, it was very, um, just deeply, deeply meaningful. Mm. Very, I was very lucky to be a part of it. Mm. Very lucky to meet the people I did. And I learned so much. Mm. And I went in thinking one thing and, you know, came out changed yeah and entirely and it wasn't even that I went in with any hubris I went in with no hubris I 
uh, I just went in open, but thinking, oh, well, this is going to go this way. This is gonna, and it didn't go that way at all. Mm. It was extraordinary. Mm. That's the best and possible experience. Oh, yeah. And the best possible outcome of his book. I mean, we, I, I just did a podcast with my friend Piers Tordy, who's a novelist, and he, in our first five minutes, sort of made my hair stand on end, where he just in passing said something like, well, every novel is a, is a call to action. Mm. And I stopped him and asked him to expand on that. So you listeners, you can find it in that podcast because we won't go into it twice. But but I've, I've been really pondering that. I've been really thinking about that's such an interesting point of view. It's such an interesting point of entry. It, it's such an interesting way to pick up any book. What is this book inviting of me? What? Mm. But not just imaginatively, where is it asking me to go? Yeah. But but morally, emotionally, what is its imperative? What it is? What is it demanding of me? How is it asking my worldview to change in any small or large way? And his is so unequivocal in what he's asking. Oh, yeah. It really is. And I, I... Well, this is a kind of preaching that doesn't feel like preaching. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't feel didactic. Yeah. It feels open. Yeah. But it is if nothing else, a huge call to action. Yeah. I mean, it, and so is the second book, the follow-up book, yeah. which we also just read. Yeah. But I, I think that that's a really great, that it made me, I just flashed to the scene in Anna Karenina when they're in the mushrooms, in the mushroom, they're in the forest and they're trying to connect and, and this, I forget, I can't even remember the characters. Levin names. and Kitty? I mean, it wasn't Levin and Kitty, it was like, they were like, not sub-characters, but they were like, uh, they were supporting, they were yes. supporting supporting characters. characters. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, it was terrible. And they had been trying to get together for months and months and they had engaged in this sort of uh, Howard's End sort of uh, flirtation that went, yeah. you know, it was just unfulfilled and unconsummated. Yes. And they finally have their chance alone in the forest and searching for truffles or something. And there's a moment where they could actually, if not consummate, acknowledge that this was going on. Mm-hmm. And the moment ineffably passes and it's clear to them in that moment that it'll never come oh, back. That's right. And so that exquisite detail, calling someone to pay attention, it's literally to pay attention, yeah. I think. Yeah. If not a call to action, it's like pay attention. Yeah. Open your eyes to this. Notice. Yeah. Consider looking at this. Yeah. Or consider this. Yeah. I have a last question. Yes. You can take one book to your desert island. Oh, God. It can, it can be one of these. It can be something quite different. What is it? This is such a tough one. This is a real cop-out of an answer, I have to say. But I think it would be the thing I would need to feed me. Mm-hmm. And it would be a survey of art. Mm. It would almost have to be... Um, and uh, textbooks are fraught with it would have to be it's a, it's a book that doesn't exist basically okay. because I went you know they've all been written and they've written many people out of the textbooks uh-huh. who belong in the textbooks sure. so th- it doesn't exist but if I could design my own yes art can. textbook you absolutely okay can. that's what I would bring a comprehensive survey yes like, with visual and biography in there yes well. and story and background and maybe some philosophy thrown in and history and that's I don't want to put you on the spot but I'm smelling a book I feel like you need to curate oh this book immediately I'll get crucified for it I'll do something Write wrong I'm the sure the book you want to take to the desert island well, that seems like what Annie Dillard would tell you to do she would she would say give voice to your astonishment yes. so I would choose the things that astonish me yeah and I am fortunately I'm so lucky to live in the city where I am constantly astonished by a variety and a plurality of of voices but also historically I think there's so much 
There's endless amounts to be astonished by, mm. to be and to learn from. Well, um, thank you for doing my podcast for the second time. This was so fun, and can I tell you all, so different to the first one, and so juicy, and just goes to show what a brilliant mind and artist you are. Oh, that we didn't replicate you. it word for word. We really didn't. No, I, we didn't. We had a completely different conversation and a better one. Thank you so. Thank you so, so much for having me, much. and thank wonderful. you for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at Bookish with page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.